The following program is a podcast1.com production. Let's play. I've decided who I'm supporting, well, voting for, this year's presidential election. Uh, I really had to spend some time considering all my options. I've had really no horse in the race, but now that it is 2016 and we are, uh, you know, we're looking down. Well, it's, you know, this is interesting. You know, we drag on presidential elections for years, years in Canada, they're only allowed like two weeks of campaigning, which is really kind of awesome, don't you? Don't you think? I mean, they get two weeks. I think they may have stretched it this year with a prime minister, so it went to four or something like that. But that's it. Oh, and by the way, the Canadians were complaining. About the four weeks of uh, of uh, political ads and news and campaigning, they were complaining that it was four weeks. We're dealing with literally two years. Canada, you get two weeks and that's it. Make your case. They vote. It's done. And they voted for the handsome guy, and that's who they got. Handsome guy. But that's be that as that may. You know, it's, it's, there's choices here. There's Republican, there's Democrat, there's there's no independent, but I think voting for Sanders or uh, or Trump is like voting independent in a way. It's definitely, you know, you're definitely going out of the normal range of politics. Um, there's female versus male. There's old versus young. There's so many considerations when choosing who you're voting for, choosing who I'm voting for. And I think I finally decided that I am going to vote for the first candidate who says publicly and without withdrawing it or qualifying it, says something positive about the opposing party. And by that, I mean something like says, you know, so-and-so in the Republican Party had a good idea. And leave it like that. The first candidate who acknowledges that their opponent has a positive idea. And they both sides do. It just blows my mind that... This refusal to acknowledge a good idea 
if it's from the opposition. And and, and the mind-numbing levels that it goes to, whereas if someone in the opposition takes a position that your side held before, it's a bad idea. That goes with Obamacare, which, by the way, will be a badge of honor, I promise you, 20 years from now. Will be a badge of honor. He'll be old and laughing that it's called Obamacare. It's named after him. Okay? Health coverage for everybody. But his basic plan was Romney's plan. The health care plan that Romney, a Republican, put into place in Massachusetts, because Romney, like I spoke about before, was a Northeastern Republican, <coughs> fiscally conservative, socially liberal. He instituted statewide health care years ago in Massachusetts for his people. Republicans applauded it. Yay! Brilliant! Brilliant! Until a Democrat said, yeah, I'm going to take that idea and uh, do something with it. Bad idea. It's a horrible idea. It's terrible. Sucky idea, but it's your guy's idea. No, it isn't. And then there's this absolute deny the, the, the idea, and this goes for both sides, by the way, of denying and lying that an idea the opposition has is anything like their idea. And it's been so... So much of this going on. So that's that's my, I'm just sitting and I'm waiting. And the first person that goes, you know what? President Bush had a good idea. Uh, it, was a great, it was a great idea. And I'm glad we did that. From the Democratic side, someone does that, that's my man or woman. Same goes for the Republican side. Someone steps up and goes, you know what? Hey, that Obama, he had the right idea there. There, that was, that was good. You know, he screwed up a lot, but that was a good one. First person that can do that, I vote for. And I'll bet you the majority of people, not bet you, I know, the majority of people in the country feel the same way. It is positively infuriating. I was watching um, Obama's numbers, and, and by the way, this isn't going to be a political podcast. It's just... It just, it just gets to me. And, you know, and Obama's numbers are way down. Obama's likability, his, you know, 67% of the country think he's doing a bad job. You know, 25% think he's doing a good job, and then there's the undecideds. And then they're relating these, this information. They go, oh, and, 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 you know, and, and, you know, and to be totally fair, uh, 75% of the country, country thinks, the whole government sucks. 75% thinks Congress, the Senate, and the House are ineffectual. They can't get anything done. 75% are disgusted with the political system. Me too. Hence, Trump's success. Hence, Bernie Sanders' success. Hence Cruz. Hence Fiorina. Hence all these outsiders who are being considered because people are just disgusted. 
give me a candidate who could say something positive about the other side. You know what? That speaks volumes to me. A person that's honest enough and fair enough to acknowledge a good idea from the opposition. That's what I want from my presidential candidate. Think I'll get one? <laughs> Don't hold your breath. So, David Bowie died. Um, wow. Dropping like flies, huh? This is just the uh, this is just the way it's going to be. This is the way it always was, by the way. It's just that when we were younger. Now I'm assuming I know there's younger people listening. Not everybody listening is old, um, but those of you who are, we get this sense like, oh, everybody's dying. No, they've they've always been dying. We're just unaware because it's not our people who are dying. Now, our people die, are dying, and it reminds us that, oh, we're moving up online. It's just that, that long, really slow line for the big ride in the sky, and we're just taking little steps forward. And we were, like, way at the end, you know, when we were born. You know, just little step, little step. You know, God, we're never going to get on this ride. Now we can actually see the ride. <laughs> Now we're getting glimmers, glimpses, I should say, of the ride. Hey, I kind of see it. It's, uh, wow, it's kind of big. Yeah, it looks kind of exciting. Uh, actually, I can't really tell what it does. It's some kind of ride, but I have no idea what it does. That makes it a little scary. Kind of like Space Mountain at Disneyland. You know, a roller coaster in the dark. Imagine some really... Thrilling, you know. I say, imagine any ride that you had no, never were given any idea what it was. All you know is you walked into the total darkness, got on it. How terrifying would a ride like that be? It could be nothing. It could be, you know, a big, uh, a big pillow, cushy cloud with harp, you know, and, and wings, just like they have pictures of heaven. It could be like that. But taking that step onto that ride, how terrifying would that be? Well, we're all stepping forward a little bit closer. We lost Lemmy. And then, what, a week later, we lose David Bowie. And David Bowie, I don't have that connection to him the way I have to Lemmy. Lemmy was um, a personal connection. David Bowie is a musical connection. David Bowie, without David Bowie, there would be no D. Snyder, no Twisted Sister. I, I no, no, I can't say there'd be no D. Snyder. There would be no Twisted Sister, though. Twisted Sister was born of the early '70s glitter era, and my musical style was heavily influenced by the early 70s glitter era as you know uh, epitomized as 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 is defined by David Bowie Alice Cooper bands like that you know there's other bands that that from that era like Slade and Mott the Hoople and stuff like that but Bowie was a trendsetter he was a person who was defining the trends 
and uh, and for five albums, you know, we got Honky Dory, you've got uh, Aladdin Sane, you've got um, you got Spiders from Mars. Uh, I'm blanking out on everything here. Diamond Dogs, and there's another one in there for for five, if it's six albums. He was just right pinups. He was righteous. He rocked. He was edgy, and he was, he you know he was obviously his whole sexuality and the cross dressing and got a lot of inspiration from that. I did. I, I went up, you know, took it to a different place. But Bowie really helped bring me there, <clears throat> and Twisted Sister, for that matter, even more. As you know, the band existed before I joined, and uh, you know, so Bowie. I owe him so much. Then he found some damn red shoes and lost his freaking mind, you know, and became a dance guy, disco guy. I don't know what he was and completely abandoned everything, but he was a changeling, man. He was a changeling. Yeah, he ripped off Brian Ferry's image. And Brian Ferry oh, from uh, Roxy Music. Oh, that was <clears throat> that whole, you know, put on your red shoes. And that was Brian Ferry's look, clothing style. Music sense, everything. If you don't know who Brian Ferry is, look Roxy Music. You know, the, I'm trying to think what song you would know. Love is the Drug was their biggest song. But he was really good friends with Brian Ferry. I know this firsthand from Brian Ferry's manager. Bowie and Ferry were great friends. And when Bowie came out with the Young Americans image, which was Brian Ferry's image, Brian Ferry was devastated. One of his closest friends had taken his whole vibe and then went on to do more with it than Brian Ferry did with it. Imagine that frustration. Imagine someone just takes your entire essence and uses it to become more successful than ever. Now, mind you, and this isn't a trash David Bowie thing at all. David Bowie brought so much to the table. And like I said, he changed my life. But it's just you know, some information you know, that there are people who say that was Bowie's modus operandi, that he had a sense for what was happening. And it was very, he had his pulse on the street. And he would pick up on trends that were coming, and then he would blow them up. Madonna's another person who has uh, been accused of that. So David Bowie is gone, and um, like I said, I I don't have that connect. It's a musical connection. It's the end of an era. He went out with incredible coolness, style. I, it reminds me of Johnny Cash. You know, when Johnny Cash was near the end of his life, and he and he. Uh, he did Hurt and Rusty Cage. Remember those songs he did? That amazing version of Nine Inch Nails Hurt and the video? It was like, wow, what an epitaph before he was gone. And he was gone shortly after that. Uh, Bowie has this Black Star album that he was recording while he's dying of cancer and shoots a video. He's essentially on his deathbed, shoots a video 
and singing a song called Lazarus about going to heaven and dying and a video of him looking like death on a deathbed and releases the album two days before he dies. And apparently two days after, dies after two days after his birthday. An interesting side thing, and I want to get to Lemmy Kilmeister's funeral. To sort of share with you some, some information, and I know I've been Lemmy heavy the last couple of weeks. This is a life that affected me um, on a different level. And I, didn't, I don't think I even realized how much till he was gone. Kind of crazy. Kind of crazy. But one of the people who spoke at Lemmy's memorial, and I'll tell you more about that, said that Lemmy believed that our birth date was our death date as well, and that we were meant to die on the day we were born. And Lemmy died two days after his birthday. David Bowie died two days after his birthday. So if you fudge around with a leap year and stuff, it was probably pretty much around his birthday. It's just an interesting, I never thought about that before, but uh, an interesting observation. Apparently, Lemmy had many interesting conversations and could talk about pretty much anything, including the stretchability of certain fabrics. Apparently that, apparently that was an evening's conversation with one of his drinking buddies. Drugs, it's a powerful thing. Um so, rest in peace, David Bowie. Uh, you gave me so much. You showed me so much. You opened my eyes. You gave me strength to do some of the things I did. I, you know, I have many a person who says they've gotten got strength from me being brave and bold and forthright and taking chances and being fearless, dressing the way I dressed and looking the way I looked and acting the way I acted. And you're welcome, but here's a man that I owe, David Bowie. So thank you, David. There's a star man waiting in the sky. Um, So on to Lemmy's funeral. Lemmy's funeral was, what's the word I'm looking for? Not enjoyed, shared internationally, which was really spectacular. Um, There were gatherings all over the world on the day of his memorial, which was last week. What day was that? It wasn't Sunday. Uh, fr- well, I, I don't know what day it was, Friday, Thursday, last Thursday. Um, and he, it, what started as, I think, as an intimate small thing quickly grew when people realized how many people were touched by this guy. And there was going to be, a, there was a memorial, a private memorial scheduled for friends, family. Then there was a memorial at the Rainbow, which was Lemmy's favorite place to hang out, when he was up back in the, when he was back in California and off the road, he would spend every night at the Rainbow. How much was he hanging at the Rainbow? 
Well, as Dave Grohl from the Foo Fighters said during his eulogy, he was at the Rainbow with Lemmy one night, and Lemmy ordered a couple of Jack and Cokes. And when the bartender gave them to him, she also gave Lemmy his mail. That's how much he was hanging out at the Rainbow. That's a lot of hanging out when your mail goes there. Um, so it was supposed to, there was supposed to be a memorial at the Rainbow following the memorial service at Forest Lawn Cemetery in Los Angeles. And it was in a church. Not that Lemmy was religious on any level, but it was, you know, it was, he was cremated. And they did, a, I don't know where they put his ashes exactly. I think it was put in a vault or something. Um, and, you know, and it needed to be a gathering place. And the, the church was a likely gathering place. There was no signs of religious signs. There was no hymnals or books or Bibles or prayer books in the pews. I didn't see the cross. I saw a lot of iron crosses, flower displays in the shape of iron crosses. My band Twisted Sister gave Lemmy a, um, a flower display in the shape of a bottle of Jack Daniels. Phil Campbell from Motorhead, who's English and was not able to make the memorial service, sent a very interesting, very unique flower arrangement it was a large mirror. I'd say it was easily 12 by 12 with a line of white flowers right in the middle in the shape of a line of speed. How's that for a strange, non-religious <laughs> uh, flower arrangement? So there was a, you know, a lot of flowers, a lot of people. But before I get to the memorial service itself, there was going to be a post-gathering at the Rainbow, at first just for the people, the friends and family at the Rainbow, then opening up to the general public at like 9 o'clock. Well, it became clear that the Rainbow was not going to be able to accommodate all the people who wanted to come to Lemmy's memorial gathering at his favorite club. So quickly, the Troubadour uh, nightclub, the Whiskey, uh, the Roxy, all the other clubs in, in the area on the Strip, they opened their doors to people who wanted to come in to memorialize Lemmy. And those of you who are following know that the whole memorial service and then the memorial after party was all live-streamed. And people all over the world were at gatherings, at clubs, and bars in Lemmy's honor, watching the live stream, enjoying his music, drinking a Lemmy. The Lemmy is, a, uh, is the Jack and Coke. There's a campaign to rename the Jack and Coke a Lemmy, which I think is a much cooler name than a Jack and Coke. I totally endorse it, even though I don't drink. Except this um, cappuccino I'm drinking right now. And so all over the world, there are thousands, hundreds of thousands of people memorializing Lemmy Kilmeister. The Sunset Strip itself 
was just lines of people. Lemmy fans. And I say Lemmy fans because they couldn't possibly all be Motorhead fans. Because Motorhead wasn't that big a selling band. Yes, they sold. But they weren't one of these multi-platinum bands. They weren't U2. They weren't Bowie. They weren't Springsteen or Madonna or Elton John. They sold records. They had following. They had a following. They were big. But the outpouring for Lemmy, I think, far exceeded the 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 band's popularity. And I think it's because of what Lemmy represented. He was rock and roll. He lived it. He breathed it. He was as genuine as they come. So genuine. So real. And people felt compelled to acknowledge the passing of this great man. And when going now to the memorial service at, at Forest Lawn, when the people in attendance, it was the range so reflected. And by the way, this was in, invita- invited by, who did a great job, Todd Singerman, Lemmy and Motorhead's manager for the last 15 years. Bravo, Todd. Bra fucking vo. Room is packed with people and not your traditional people. And the range from rock deity, z, plural, to the common man, all friends and family, of course. Lemmy's son spoke there and Lemmy's girlfriend was there. Lemmy had one son uh, who told some great stories. But they, that was the range. So on the rock deity side, you had Ozzy there. And Gene Simmons there, and Rob Halford there, and Lars Ulrich, and uh, Robert, uh, I can't remember the bass player's name from Metallica, he's got a gazillion Triego, Triego. and and, uh, Dave Grohl, Slash, Duff, Matt Sorum. Okay? You've got rock deities. Some of the biggest bands, you talk, you know, we're talking about record sales, some of the biggest selling bands in the world. Are there. And then there's business associates, family members, but then there's people who were like, were a family from Germany who followed Motorhead everywhere, a whole family. And Lemmy, being the welcoming guy he was, you should have heard Lars Ulrich's story about how welcoming Lemmy was to him when he was just a fan before he even was in a band, following Motorhead around the world. And Lemmy inviting a 17-year-old kid just onto the bus, into the studio, backstage, just welcoming him. Because he's, I don't know why, because he was Lemmy. It's the way he was with people. But this family, Lemmy, took to there was a woman there who was not a motorhead follower at all she wasn't a girlfriend she was nothing but she was lemmy's friend and she was there and the people who got up and, t- and spoke 
Sure, Lars spoke and Grohl spoke and Slash spoke. And now Mike Inez from Alice in Chains, he spoke. But then crew members spoke. Is The guy who makes Lemmy's boots, those great boots, Pascal, uh, does a lot of leather work for me too. But Pascal Cooper, if you riffraff leather, if you want to look him up, um, amazing. But he became a friend of Lemmy's. Lemmy's drinking buddy, who just used to go like hang out with Lemmy on the Sunset Strip and drive Lemmy around on the back of his motorcycle to strip clubs and bars. He spoke. That was the range, and that but that was Lemmy. And everybody had the same love and affection for this guy. It was, I'm going to use the word, wonderful. It was. It was a great memorial service. And they had, you know, besides all those flowers, they they had, um, you know, they had a, they, well, they had the urn. And I, I didn't even tell what the urn was, but, you know, his hat and his boots were up there, like classic Lemmy items that he's kind of known for. And then they had his two amps. Now, they used to be called Murder 1 and Murder 2, but I think these are new amps because they had different names. But two brutal Marshall custom amplifiers, and his bass was up there, and his mic stand was up there, the classic Lemmy mic stand. And when everybody had finished talking and when the memorial service was over, by the way, the memorial service started with, uh, when you walked in, they were giving out shots of Jack. In, Len- in Lemmy's honor. Again, not your traditional church service. And my wife, Suzette, said to me, should we, you know, we don't drink. We have a glass of wine, and that's only recently. We, I didn't drink at all in the heyday. Uh, I About 10 years ago, she and I started having a glass of wine with dinner, with a meal, because we heard red wine's good for you. So we don't drink. And my wife said, should we have a shot? in Lemmy's honor, you know, out of respect for Lemmy. And I said, listen, one of the first conversations I had with Lemmy, like one-on-one, was when he and I were in a side room and he pulled out some speed and he laid out two lines, cut them up, and he offered me the rolled up pound note or whatever it was. And I looked at Lemmy and I said, Lemmy, I don't get high. And Lemmy looked at me and said, all right, more for me. And that was our relationship. He had no problem with the fact that I didn't get high. I had no problem with the fact that he got high. He wasn't judging me for my choice. I didn't judge him for his choice. We respected and admired each other. And I heard so many people come up, came up to me and said, you have no idea how much how highly Lemmy thought of you. You know, I, I, I told you Lemmy said I was one of the three greatest front men he ever seen. And this is a guy who saw the Beatles and the Rolling Stones when they were coming up. He's a guy who roadied for Hendrix. Also said, he said I was the best at talking to the audience of anybody he's ever seen. To me, that was some of the highest praise I ever got. So he respected me. I respected him. But I said to my wife, I don't got to do a shot. Lemmy's cool with it. More for him. 
That's what Lemmy would say. So, after the sir, oh, when everybody's done talking, and Dave Grohl's the last one to speak, and everybody spoke, it was it was amazing. The way people spoke, even they weren't professional speakers. They were they were eloquent, even though they weren't trying to be eloquent. They were just relaying genuine feeling. That's why it came across so well. They were just they were just expressing genuine genuine emotion, and as a result, were able to talk, speak before a crowd, and say something that connected with people. Because also, you were speaking. You were, what does it say? Uh, you're, you're you're preaching to the choir. Everybody there had been touched by Lemmy, so there was this incredible connection. But when Grohl finished, and he was the last one, he walked off, and everybody was sort of sort of. You know, wondering what goes on next and, and watching Dave walk back to his seat. That moment where you're wondering what's going to happen next. And all of a sudden, a roadie gets on stage, picks up Lemmy's bass guitar, and hits a Lemmy chord on volume 10. This was in a quiet church. Two Marshall bass amps on 10. Uh, hit the way, and this is Lemmy's bass tech, so he knows how Lemmy pounds the chords. Hits the chord and sticks, the, which just like was like a punch in the face, and then sticks the bass amp, the bass guitar against the amp. This is exactly what Lemmy Kilmeister did at the end of every Motorhead show. Motorhead fans know this, and just let the thing ring out and feed back on 10, and it was loud. It shook the building, and people stood there in awe and reverence and silence, listening to feedback. And when they turned it off, Todd Singerman said, Lemmy Kilsmeister has left the building. That was it. That was it. And we all quietly filed out. To the sounds of Derek and Clive, which is um, Dudley Moore and Peter Cook, a comedy album, which is one of the most profane, disgusting, wonderfully hysterical, funny albums of all time. If you're not familiar with Derek and Clive, seek it out. Uh, it is. It was actually, just to digress a little bit, uh, Peter Cook and Dudley, Dudley Moore were a comedy team in England, and they had a contractual obligation for one more album. So basically just saying fuck you to the record company, they went in the studio, turned on the microphone with Eddie Kramer, he who you know produced, uh, engineered Hendrix and Zeppelin and Stones and Kiss and Peter Frampton and Woodstock and he Twisted Sister. Turned the mic on, started drinking and getting high, and just rolled tape. Released the album. The album cover was Vomit. It was called Derek and Clive Live. Thing was a huge success. One of Lemmy's favorite records. It's, it's the funniest thing. And Derek and Clive Live played as people filed out of the church. 
And the bit was, um, what do you mean, L.O.? Which starts out, so this guy comes up to me at the football match and says, L.O. And I said, what do you fucking mean, L.O.? And it starts a discussion where, a profanity-laden discussion, all based on the fact that someone had the audacity to say hello to Peter Cook, who's Derek, and Clive's, you know, uh, cheer, you know, encouraging him and, and understanding, commiserating, who's eager to put, him, put himself upon you. Ah, they got more mail coming in, trying to stop that. Sorry, folks. Um, so my wife and I leave, and we're driving home, and she knew Lemmy, but not how I knew Lemmy. My wife is truly one of the most unaffected people in the world. She does not care who you are. She cares. Is it, I always get this confused. Is it don't, don't care who you are, they care what you are, or don't care what you are, they care who you are? Whichever is the one that's more substantive. You know what I mean? She doesn't care you're a star. She has no interest in that. Um, but she cares about the person that you are. If you're a good person, it doesn't matter, or you're, you're a cool person, then you're, Suzette's down with you. She has no uh, no interest in celebrity. And as a matter of fact, when I met her at 15, one of the things that that, that drew me toward her is she didn't own a stereo. She didn't own a, an album or a CD. She didn't care about music. I mean, what 15-year-old person wasn't connected to music in some way? She had zero connection. She could care less about that. This made me want her in the worst way. Here was a girl that, and I spoke about this before, but that I would, if I could win her heart, it would be for all the right reasons. That was my theory on you know scoring Suzette, so to speak. So, but I'm going to get more into that because in a minute, because I've got a, uh, a story to tell about a weekend with Robert Plant, me, Suzette, Robert, and Robert's girlfriend at the time. Uh, just she has no. I don't know. Remember her name? She has no significance. He's moved on multiple times. He's he's Robert Plant. Uh, but we we spent a, a weekend together at a at a friend's wedding. I'll get to that in a in a bit. But Suzette says to me, she you know she sees this outpouring. She sees this genuine emotion. She knows how Lemmy affected me. She knows my story with Lemmy. Uh, she Lemmy had come to our house once and. Uh, uh, she affectionately called him Lump Face. Uh, he, you know, uh, she, and we spent a, a New Year's Eve, as a matter of fact, together at an MTV party. So she knew Lemmy, but she never really connected with Lemmy. Was just, um, you know, one of these crazy friends. You know, definitely a little gruff, a little rough around the edges, but uh, you know, he seems okay, that kind of guy. But she says to me, "I think Lemmy Kilmeister." was an angel. And I said, what do you mean? Now, my wife's pretty spiritual. She's, uh, you know, she's into meditation and she's into, um, you know, she, she's, she's into, she's not religious spiritual. She's energy spiritual. You know, she's, she's, she knows there's more out there and there's, there's things going on. It's not biblical it's that is, I mean, you know, this is her feelings. It's not 
like it's said in the book, in the good books. It's inspired, those, you know, those things are inspired by the reality of the energy that is God, is heaven, is hell, is whatever these things are. I'm not going to get into her philosophy, but she's, she believes, she she believes in, you know, in, in life after death and she believes in psychics and she believes she's spoken to her. She's lost some family members and she's spoken to them. So she believes that there's something more there. Just doesn't believe it's as dictated by organized religion. And she's more into, you know, the, the, the spiritual awakening. I, I, I'm being vague here because I don't really, I, I encourage it. Her and my kids are like that too. And uh, I'm a little more, you know, I'm open to it, but I'm, I'm really just sort of coasting along, enjoying life. But she says, you know, they say that angels walk amongst us, that they are sent here to help us. And I think that Lemmy may have been an angel. And I, if I said, Lemmy, Killmeister. Oh, kill Mister. Sorry, it's not Meister. It's kill Mister. Let me. I just learned that at the service. Sorry, let me. Let me kill Mister. I said the antithesis. Antithesis of an angel. Look at him. She, and she goes, "Who better to send down here? Do you really think if there's a supreme being, a supreme spirit, whatever is up there?" That he's going to send someone in flowing robes with a with wings to walk amongst us, and I always had this feeling that frontal assaults got nowhere. If you if you try to uh, you know if if you want to do good things and you try to approach people in a in a you know in a very pious way in a very traditional way in a very straight way, you turn a lot of people off. A lot of people could really use the guidance and the help. But if you speak to them in their own vernacular, so to speak, and you look like them and you act like them and you live like them, your words are more likely to be heard. And wouldn't it be ironic? I mean, somebody up there, I think it was Mike Inez who spoke great. The bass player from Alice in Chains, played with Ozzy, so many bands, Heart. He said, people say, Lemmy is God. You know, it's one of those things that's thrown up, that's bandied about over, over time. Different, different people are God. And he goes, I think he was. I think maybe he came down and walked amongst, amongst us. Now, you, some people, if you're religious, are screaming, that is sacrilege. But I'm just saying do we have to assume that it's going to be so obvious? The angels will come down or God comes down or that it's going to be so obvious? Again, the flowing robes and the sandals, is it going to be like that? Or might it be something so much subtler, so much more insidious? How crazy would it be if Lemmy Kilmeister was actually an angel. And let me tell you, 
how he touched me, what I saw, this, heard Lars Ulrich's story, and, and Slash, and Dave, and, uh, uh, and the, the shoemaker, and the fans, and the people there. And I saw the outpouring on Sunset Boulevard, and all over the world, the love. People who spoke about, it wasn't musical, it was more. But how Lemmy Kilmeister, Kilmister had touched them. Is it really that crazy to think that Lemmy, I think my wife might be right. Certainly was my angel. All right, this story is sad but true. I've told you about my son Cody and his girlfriend and how they leased a car together and just feel insanely ripped off. Well, now we're sitting at dinner. This is just last night. I kid you not. I'm not. You can't make this shit up. And we're talking about this nightmare of a deal they made with this car and how from beginning to end, it has felt like they were ripped off, that they were taken, and how not a day goes by that they don't feel abused and frustrated by the lousy deal they got on this new car. And now they want to get rid of the car and they don't know how to do it without losing a shitload of money. They just went down the wrong path. And I told them, I said, you know, guys, I've been using your example as fodder for fodder, not mutter, fodder, as fodder for a commercial I do. And my son goes, true car and he says it knowingly i said yeah true car you know about true car he goes and and his his girlfriend's face just drops this is a discussion they've had he goes yes if only i'd known about true car this i swear to you this is true these are their words this happened last night at dinner i'm smiling ear to ear because like i said you can't make this shit up he says, please, I know about TrueCar. I should have used TrueCar. I didn't know about it at the time. And it just makes me sick to know that I had a choice. There was another way to do this. And I wouldn't have to feel like such a piece of dog shit. And I said to him, you know, and that's, I said, I make that point. And I told him what I say on the commercial and how you feel like you've been taken when you're buying a car and you feel so lost and out of your out of place in the in the showroom dealing with the salesman. And he said it couldn't be truer. So you don't have to feel like Cody. You can go online to find the fair price on a new car via True Car. Now with True Car, you can see what others in your area have paid for the same car, something Cody finds out about every day. All right? This will help you determine a fair price. Then you get a guaranteed savings certificate from a True Car certified dealer. Your savings will be honored by a True Car certified dealer without the need to negotiate. You're not going to go back in the showroom and start from square one. You did your negotiating on your computer, and it's not even negotiating. It's coming to a fair price, finding out what the fair price is, locking it in, getting your certificate, savings certificate, guaranteed savings certificate. TrueCar users save an average of $3,221 off of MSRP. I can assure you, my son did not. 
And it's no hassles, no headaches. It's how car buying was always meant to be. Just ask Cody. Over 2 million cars have been sold by the True Car Certified Dealer Network. And there are over 10,000 dealers in the True Car Certified Dealer Network. So there's got to be one near you. You will work directly with a True Car Certified Dealer contact. Done and done. Visit TrueCar.com or download the TrueCar app and start saving today. TrueCar, never overpay. Word. And that's truth. Hey, peeps, this is D. Just wanted to take a minute to thank all my great sponsors and all of you great listeners for supporting my sponsors and this podcast. All of your contributions help make this show possible. And I wanted to remind you that you can support my sponsors by going to my show page at podcastone.com, clicking on the Support This Podcast banner, and there you'll see all my wonderful sponsors that help keep the lights on. God, I love those people. In addition to my sponsors, you can also support this podcast by using my Amazon banner. Amazon offers this show a small commission on any product you purchase. It doesn't cost you anything. You can even use my Amazon banner if you're located in Canada or the UK. Also, to make it easier for all future purchases, feel free to bookmark my Amazon URL. Thanks again for all your support, and now back to my show. So... I was saying how Suzette is incredible, my wife, incredibly unaffected, which makes her amazing. Uh, I mean, I mean, obviously, I mean, from, I would think that, but it's, it's, she's unique in that people's value is based on who they really are. Lemmy's like that, you know, not, not that you're a star or you're famous or you're not famous. And my wife does many things. She was, you know, the, a costume designer and she did the clothes with twisted and hair and makeup. But she's a professional hairdresser. She's a professional makeup artist. And she does freelance from uh, over the years. She's done freelance doing makeup for movies and television and photo shoots and things like that. And everybody wants to hire her, especially when it comes to dealing with celebs. The reason is is because she's so likable. If you've seen her on any reality shows, you know why I'm so smitten, and you know the, the special woman she is. If you saw Celebrity Wife Swap or Growing Up Twisted or any of these shows that we've done together, you can see her unique spirit. But she's unaffected by celebrity. So when she works like for a television show that has celebrities on it, no matter who is in the chair being made up, they're all treated the same. Everybody wants her working for them because that's a big problem they have with makeup artists is that they are affected by the people in the chair. And they, Suzette will never ask for a photograph. She'll never ask for an autograph. She's not rude. She's friendly and lovely and welcoming to everybody. This is her special thing but it truly makes her unique how unique let me tell you a story about the time robert plant opened up for d snyder and this will give you an insight into suzette and it's a funny story it's 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 not all about suzette it's actually about a a situation so my manager, Phil Carson, uh, he was the, the head of Atlantic Records in Europe. He 
the, the, the McGuy's a legend. He signed ABBA and he signed Genesis and he signed Twisted and ACDC and Yes and ELP. And, you know, it's just amazing. The, uh, he he played bass with Dusty Springfield when the Beatles opened up for Dusty. I mean, he'd been there, and he was Atlantic Records. He was point person for Led Zeppelin from album one when they did the first tour, and they you know they would go down a storm. They only had one album when they would run out of material and need to do more encores. Phil would stand off stage and play bass while John Paul Jones played keyboards, and they'd do fifties covers. If you read Hammer of the Gods, Phil Carson is mentioned throughout there, often referenced as the Reverend Spank Bottom, for those of you who read the book and those of you who want to look it up. So Phil, two of his closest friends, close with him, close with his family, are myself and Robert Plant. And Phil's son was getting married, and it was a destination wedding. So Robert and I were flying in, and Phil and his, uh, his family were kind enough to put us all up. And people who were traveling, you know, came in. You don't just show up. In the, you, don't, you don't fly in for the morning for the service and then leave that night after, you know, you need a hotel to stay at. So it was a weekend th- kind of thing. So we arrive on Friday, Thursday maybe, I don't know. <clears throat> um, we've got a couple days there. It's in Palm Springs. And Robert and his girlfriend and me and uh, Suzette are hanging out, spending time together. Uh, For me, as a Robert Plant fan, to actually be able to talk about hanging out with Robert Plant and to say he's a friend is just insane. Okay, the man's poster I'm not unaffected. The man's poster hung over my bed. I bowed down before Robert Plant. Notice the long, blonde, curly hair? Anybody? Anybody? Where do you think that came from? Um, so we're hanging out. Now, the wedding's coming. And there's one thing about weddings that I loathe. And that is this implied thing that people who are musicians or singers are expected to perform Now, I don't get that. Nobody else is expected to do their job at a wedding. The mechanic's not expected to go and change somebody's oil. The accountant's not expected to crunch some numbers. But a singer, everybody looks, everybody's looking for the singer, especially if he's famous. You know, nobody wants to hear the singer is not famous. Famous singer, they get up there and sing. So I know Phil Carson is having a live band. Phil, as I said, was the bass player in Dusty Springfield, so he's a musician. He's got a live band. He's got a lot of his friends there. And I know he's going to want me and Robert to get up there and perform. So I asked Robert, I said, Robert, are you going to get up there and perform? And Robert says, and I'm not going to do the English accent, all right? So let's, I'll, just, I'll, I'll do it with an American accent, but just imagine it's Robert going, no, I might. You know, it's, he goes, oh, man, no. He goes, I hate that. I said, you hate that? He goes, oh, I can't stand that. What's the deal? Why Why do singers have to sing at weddings? I go, I am so glad you said that, man, because it makes me nuts. Every wedding I go to, they expect me to get up there and sing. He goes, oh, no, man, that's, that's terrible. So I'm like, oh. I said, because you know, Robert, if you sing, I got to sing. So, I mean, if you're not singing, this is beautiful. But I said, look, Phil is going to expect us to sing. He goes, look, we'll go to the wedding. Afterwards, we'll show up for cocktails. Then you, me, Suzette, my girl will sneak out and we'll go get a bite to eat. 
We'll sneak out of the reception. I go, perfect plan. Because you know if we stay, gonna, Phil is going to work us to get up there and sing. He's like, not a problem. So we go to the wedding. We see young Jack Carson and his lovely bride get married and a beautiful ceremony. And then uh, the actual reception was connected. It was one of those things where they got married in the reception hall. We go to cocktails. And I got great. We got the plan down. We're just going to hang for a couple of little drinks. And then we're going to slip away. Beautiful. So I'm sitting in the back of the room at a table. Picture a long table. And it's me and Robert in the middle sitting on the same side of the table. Robert's girlfriend to his right and Suzette to my left. And I'm, and mind you, I want to say, it's a formal affair. All right, we are, it is tuxedos. This is not a rock and roll wedding. This is a high-end, expensive destination tuxedos, black tie. So I'm sitting there, and people are filing in. I'm talking to Suzette, and I got my back to Robert. You know, I mean, he's talking to his girl, I'm talking to my girl. I'm not being rude to Robert. We're sitting next to each other, but I'm turned in my seat, you know. And all of a sudden, I hear from the stage, we've got a special guest coming to the stage. I'm like, special guest? I look up, and Robert Plant is walking out on stage. Now, this is a wedding. This is Robert Plant. You can imagine the reaction, right? Place goes nuts. It's Robert Plant. I can't believe it. I am beside myself. We haven't been there five minutes. And he's already gone against our agreement. We had a deal. And he is up there. No one is, there's no gun to his head. I think he's freely walked up on the stage. He comes out and he goes, um, and he goes, all right, let's do, uh, let's do Hound Dog, Elvis Presley. He loves 50s. So he starts, they start, I ain't nothing but a hound dog. They, they're playing there and he's singing. So I finished the song. Okay, finish the song. Hey, mates, let's do another one. I'm doing a little bit of the accent because Robert is encouraging this. Again, no gun to his head. As he's doing the second song, Phil Carson, my manager and Robert's you know, former pre- friend and, and record company head, comes walking towards my table, big smile on his face, and he goes, so, D, he's English too. Are you going to get up there and sing? I said, well, I pretty much have to now. Robert Plant's on stage. And what am I going to say? Oh, Robert Plant's good enough to sing, but D. Snyder was too cool. He couldn't sing. Yeah, I'm going to go sing. And he goes, well, that's the last time Robert Plant opens up for you. And he walks off. Robert finishes song two. Hey, let's do one more. Are you freaking kidding me, Plant? We had a, I'm screaming in the back of the room. Nobody can hear me. Music's playing, crowded. People are packed to the stage in their tuxedos and gowns. And Robert Plant is doing the third of a, some 50s, obscure 50s track. They all sound the same. And he finishes. And my manager comes out on stage. Oh, let's hear, everybody, let's hear from Robert Plant. Wasn't that lovely? And now we have another special guest coming up. Please welcome to the stage, Dee Snyder. I come out. People are cheering. Yeah, this, is, this is great. Two rock stars up on stage singing 
at a wedding, a wedding, wearing a tuxedo. So I said, all right, before I sing this, I just got to ask this question. What, and now I'm going to my best Jerry Seinfeld, you know, what is the deal? Why do singers have to sing? Why do we have to do our jobs? You, lady over there with the interior designer, did anybody say to you, interior decorator, throw a couple of curtains up for us? No, it's your day off. Accountants don't crunch numbers. Mechanics don't fix things. It's a wedding. But no, the singers, they got to go up stage and they got to do their job. It's their day off too. We got, well, people are laughing. I'm ranting. People are laughing. So what are you going to do? So I'm like, all right, I'm not singing some 50 songs. I'm like, um, I'm not singing Twisted. Like, hey, you guys know any ACDC? Yeah. What about Highway to Hell? Yeah. So here I am. We do Highway to Hell. I'm singing Highway to Hell in a tuxedo at a wedding. And the crowd is, you know, loving it. They're wearing their tuxedos and everybody's drinking heavily. I get finish the song. I'm going to walk on stage. Oh, do another one. Phil Carson yells out my manager. Another one. I'm like, duh. So I'm like, and I remember Robert Plant said to me, I hate hearing my own music when I go places. So that is, I hate hearing my own music when I go places. I said, do you guys know rock and roll by Led Zeppelin? And they all go, yeah. I look out and I go, plant, you son of a bitch. You, I said this over the microphone. You said we weren't singing and you got up here and sang. So this is for you. Let's do Rock and Roll by Led Zeppelin. Let me tell you something. When I auditioned for Twisted Sister, it was on Zeppelin songs. I can sing a mean Led Zeppelin. It's, it's actually quite shocking. We kick into rock and roll, and I start belting out, I am just going for it. I tear that fucker up. Now, I'm, I, now I have to go back. I mentioned that Suzette is the least affected person you ever want to meet. All weekend long, she has been calling Robert Plant Jimmy. That's right. The Golden God. She's calling him Jimmy all weekend long. Not that she's trying to be disrespectful. Not that she's trying. She's, she's that genuinely unaffected. And Robert knows it because he's not offended because it's clearly she's not trying to fuck with him. He's just like, says, well, you know, why don't we all go swimming now, Jimmy? And she goes, it's Robert. And like this is going on all weekend long. Oh, Jimmy, we should grab a bite to eat. It's Robert. Okay. I'm, oh, sorry, Robert. Sorry. Sorry. Well, I'm on stage singing rock and roll by Led Zeppelin. Cut to the back of the room. Now Robert Plant is sitting at the table with his head in his hands, shaking his head because I'm singing rock, rock and roll by Led Zeppelin, something he can't really sing anymore. And my wife is got him by the shoulder, shaking him, going, come on, Jimmy, get up. <laughs> come on, Jimmy, get up there and sing backing vocals. 
<laughs> to which Robert, he doesn't even bother to try and say it's Robert anymore. He, he says, I can't sing backing vocals on my own song. <laughs> sure you can, Jimmy. Go up there and do it. Now I'm singing rock and roll by Led Zeppelin in one of the most surreal moments of my life. I see Robert Plant weaving his way, kind of squat down low, through the crowd toward the stage. He comes up on stage. I told you this guy's poster hung over my bed. Sits on the stool on the side of the stage and watches me finishing Rock and Roll by Led Zeppelin. He doesn't sing backing vocals. Tapping his foot. Amused. Finish the song, and I get to lonely, 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 lonely. And I stick the mic out, and Robert Plant goes, time. And we finish the song. That was surreal. That was amazing. I left the stage. I said, Robert, I told you. You said we were going out. Fuck you. And... Everybody in the place was, especially the business people, was shaking their heads going, dude, you are insane. I'm like, what are you talking about? They said, you sang rock and roll in front of Robert Plant. I said, yeah, and I killed it. They said, you killed it, but still, you said, who, who does that? I said, he said, we weren't singing, and he broke our vow, and he got up there, and that's what he gets. So that's the story of the one time Robert Plant opened for Dee Snyder and exactly how unaffected my wife Suzette is by star stars. Have a great week, everybody. Talk to you next time.